Tonight we're going to look at Moses and particularly the issue of the preparation of a deliverer. Thank you. Yeah, those, um, the fans are not so great, are they? The preparation of a deliverer. Now, um, there's lots of stuff in the Bible about Moses. I'm going to read through this story. Some of this will be familiar to you, but I'm going to try and read through it fairly briskly and then make some comments about this story. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king, or some translations say a new pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitham and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, let me just say something about this before we kind of move on to the rest of the story. The shocking opening scene of Exodus chapter 1 is this. God's people are suffering in the very place that God led them. Now, to see why that's emphasized here, you have to pick up on the way this chapter 1 is connecting you to the story at the end of the book of Genesis. But this is the thing. God's people are in bondage in Egypt. How did they end up there? That's the question. And the text is wanting to remind you of how they got there. And here's the shocking answer to how they got there. God brought them to Egypt in a miraculous way. We need to remember the story, actually, that precedes this story. And you may not all know that story, so let me just summarize it for you. It's the story alluded to in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And our text, we know, wants to link the two stories. How do you know that? Because the same exact list of people in the same order is in Genesis 35 and in Exodus chapter 1. It's wanting you to go back and say, oh yeah, this order, these people's right. Here it is. So here's what we're to remember. We're to remember how Joseph got there. Do you remember how Joseph got to Egypt? His brothers threw him in a pit and sold him to slavers. Eventually, he ends up in Egypt, right? Ends up in Egypt in a cell. But eventually, he rises to being the chief advisor to the Pharaoh. And then what happens? God brings a famine. 
And the famine drives Joseph's brothers and his father to Egypt. And Joseph is able to take care of his family. Okay? So the way they got there, the way they got there is because God led them there. But he led them there through difficult things. In Genesis 46, we read that God himself told Jacob to go to Egypt with his family. Here's what God says. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is when the famine is there. For there I will make of you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. That's the story behind the story. And at first, the Israelites were well taken care of through Joseph and his connections to the Pharaoh. They're given plenty of food. They're settled in the best land in Egypt. But what does our text say in verse 7? They multiplied. They were fruitful. They increased greatly. It's an obvious reference to the creation account where God's people are told to be fruitful and multiply. So they're living out this covenant that God has called them to do. It was reiterated with the story of Noah, right? Be fruitful, multiply. That's happening, right? But then a new Pharaoh comes to power. Verse 8 is like, uh uh-oh. But there arose a new Pharaoh over Egypt, and these words, who did not know Joseph. Oh, crap. That changes everything. This Pharaoh looks at all of these Hebrews as a threat and begins a new policy of persecution and genocide. But before we rush past this, I just want you to think about this. Does this bother you? How is it that God's people are suffering in the very place God has brought them? The very place God has brought them. If there ever was a time when you could be sure that God's people were right smack dab in the middle of his will, though I absolutely hate that phrase because it's nowhere in the Bible, but I know people use that kind of phrase with the implication that if I just knew God's will and I could figure it out and be right smack dab in the middle of his will, the implication is life would be better. Well, Genesis and Exodus tells a different story that may require us to revise our expectations of what it means to be living in God's will. God brought them to Egypt and they're suffering as slaves. It's vital that we see that what the text is teaching here is that suffering and being in the will of God are not only compatible, often they are inseparable. We must have a realistic idea of what following God will look like. And yet, as we're going to see as we go through this story, God is at work and God's sovereign purposes will prevail. Let's pick the story back up again. Actually, I I didn't, there's this fascinating verse, maybe some of you guys know this. Um, What Joseph says when his brothers show up, they're a little concerned that he's going to remember that they settled him into slavery, right? And he's going to take revenge. And you remember, anybody remember what he says in chapter 50 of Genesis? If you don't know the story, it's worth going back and looking at it. Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And what God meant prevails. What you meant for evil. There's no 
lack of responsibility. What you did was evil. We're not going to soft pedal that at all, but God intended it for good. It's not the same thing as saying that good and evil aren't real things because God is so sovereign that it's all meaninglessness. No, what you meant for evil, God intended for good, and God's intentions prevailed. All right, let's pick up the story again in verse 15, chapter 1 of Exodus. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because, this is awesome, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Do you not think that's a little funny? So It's supposed to make you smile. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? 
Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray, and then we're going to talk about these stories here. Lord, we do thank you. I love the way this story ends. God remembered, and he saw, and he knew. And we need to remember and to see and to know that you are the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Help us as we come now. Consider this part of your holy word. Send your spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we talked about God's people are suffering in the very place God brought them. But as we go through the story, here's the theme that runs all through it. God is sovereign and his purposes cannot be thwarted. There are times in this story where God is almost just like flaunting his power. It's humorous, right? It's humorous. God is able not only to have Moses saved, but to have his own mother be able to nurse him and get paid for it, right? It's almost like God saying, look, nothing's too difficult for me. What, what, you know, you want, to see, you want to see something? Let me just show you. Do you get that? God is sovereign and his purposes cannot be thwarted, no matter how many threats there are to his will being accomplished. God's people are enslaved by the greatest superpower the world had ever known. Not only that, Pharaoh has set all his might and will toward genocide, but it is God's will which prevailed. You look back at chapter 1, verses 10, and compare it verse 12. It's really fascinating. Verse 10, the Pharaoh says this, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So Pharaoh's whole point is to stop them from multiplying, but it doesn't matter because compared to God's will, Pharaoh's will doesn't matter. Lest they multiply, they're going to multiply because that's God's plan and God's purpose. In spite of the persecution, God's people multiply and grow. And it's actually always been that way in the history of the church. The early church historian Tertullian famously wrote this, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more the Romans tried to stamp out Christianity, the more it grew. You can see contemporary example as well, China. There are an estimated 700,000 Christians in 1949 when the communists took over in China and began intense persecution. Persecution that still goes on, and yet today estimates are between 80 and 100 million Chinese Christians after 60 years of persecution. 700,000 to 100 million. 
We see God's sovereignty as well in the way he raises up the most unlikely of heroes to deliver his people. And I'm not talking about Moses yet. I'm actually talking about these women. The women. This is the kind of thing that would upend everybody's expectations. There are not a lot of ancient stories about women who are heroes. But God's kingdom is often upside down from the way people expect, particularly when it comes to power. The powerless are often seen to be the most powerful. Pharaoh, with all his might, is not even named. He doesn't even have the dignity of names. The Hebrew midwives are named. It's a, it's a little subtle dig of the narrator to say the Pharaoh isn't even worth naming. But these Hebrew midwives, Moses' mom and Moses' sister, are all named. And the daughter of Pharaoh, God uses her as well. God uses first the civil disobedience of the midwives. They disobey a direct order. There's no getting around it. If you think that Christians should never disobey the law, there are several passages, this being one, that would say, sorry, there are times when you must disobey man to obey God. And this is one of those. What Pharaoh commands is evil and wicked. And it's part of the satanic plot to stop the seed line of the Messiah. This is not just a story about what's going to happen to Israel. This is a story about what's going to happen to God's promise to bring the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent one day. And God is not going to let that promise come to nothing. But he also uses the shrewdness of Moses' sister and mother. And shrewdness is a biblical virtue. Jesus com commended us to be shrewd. Sometimes we don't think of shrewdness. It seems like a trick, but it's a trick for a good end and a good purpose. It's amazing. Like, like she deceives Pharaoh's daughter for a godly purpose. It's interesting, isn't it? Shrewdness and the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. All of these people, God uses all of these characteristics of who they are to accomplish his purposes. And you see as well his sovereignty and all the ironies. Let me bring out a few of the ironies. Ironies are always like God is in control, so much so that he's going to like do things in a way that you're like, oh, that's actually hilarious that he did it this way. First, mother, uh, Moses' mother does what she's supposed to do. She casts him into the Nile. Now, she puts him in a basket, but not only is the Nile a dangerous place with crocodiles, and not only is a basket something that doesn't have a rudder and it's just going to float down the river wherever the river takes it, but do you understand the Nile is one of the most important gods of Egypt? So she's basically sacrificed her son to the Nile river god. And God exercises his power and sovereignty over the river god. Later, the ten plagues are going to be uh, another example of this. The plagues are not random. Every one of the plagues is an is a in-your-face to one of the gods of Egypt, right? And God is showing that he has real power. The Lord is even able to work it out so that Moses' own mother gets paid to raise her son and bring him up in a way that he identifies with his own people. You see that later? Even though he's raised in the house of Pharaoh, he identifies with his own people. 
How could that have happened? You might have think, like, how can we work it out so that we can have a guy who has an in with the king and with the pharaoh, but he also identifies with his own people and can be a deliverer who comes up from among us? Who could come up with a way of working that out? The wisdom of God is displayed so beautifully. And of course you have to think about the wisdom of God displayed in raising that other unlikely savior, Jesus, the one who comes from a little fishing town, Galilee. Remember the people saying, this Jesus from Nazareth? Did anything good ever come from Nazareth? <laughs> right? Nobody important comes from Nazareth, what? These Galileans that are talking about Jesus, like they're unlearned fishermen. What do they know? Well, God knows. And God often uses the things that the world sees as foolishness to shame the wise. He identifies with his own people because of how he's raised, and yet he receives the best royal training in Pharaoh's house. Alec Moyer, who's a great Old Testament scholar, says it this way, Pharaoh intends to kill sons so that his kingdom will prevail, but God uses daughters to protect the son who will deliver Israel. The persuasive, sorry, the pervasive hand of God turning events to his purposes is a theme all through this section. And then we also see the sovereignty of God and the fact that this was planned a long time ago. You can go all the way back to Genesis 15, which we looked at last week, and God tells Abraham that his descendants would be sojourners and servants, would be afflicted for 400 years in a foreign land. God knew what he was doing, and he was sovereignly in control the whole time. He also shows his sovereignty in the way he prepares Moses for the work to which he'll be called one day. Only God could work it out to have Moses trained in the household of the one who had set himself against God's people, Pharaoh. And we see this as well, God's sovereignty, in the fact that even though Moses murders this Egyptian and flees to the desert, it still doesn't thwart God's plan. Again, you see irony. The Hebrew man asked Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? And yet that's exactly what God plans to do. But of course, it's going to have to happen in God's way and in God's timing. Moses cannot deliver his people by the strength of his hands. And this is actually, I think, something we should pause and just consider. How often we think that if we could only get people into the places of power, to the places of real influence, then the kingdom of God would come. This is a story that I think should cause us all to think, think about where we put our hope, right? Because if ever there was a person who had power, who had access, it would be Moses. And yet what does God do? God allows him to murder somebody and then run off into the desert. It seems that all that God had planned carefully so that he could be identified with his own people, be raised in the house of Pharaoh, have access to the Pharaoh's ear, that's how it was with Joseph, right? You would think God would do it the same way again, right? Raise up another person who can have the, the ear of the Pharaoh to protect God's people. It's like C.S. Lewis said one time, can never get back to Narnia the same way twice. And we often try to do that. We often think that, well, God did it this way, so he's going to do it that way again. But God says, no, this time I'm going to do a different thing. This time I'm going to have one who is cursed 
be the one who will deliver my people. And he's going to deliver people by speaking, and he stutters. Right? You know that later in the story? He has to have his brother Aaron speak for him because he stutters so bad he can't even talk. And yet God is going to use his words to deliver. God, God, so often God's ways emerge out of what seems like complete disaster. That's what the story is, right? It seems like everything is set up for Moses to be able to rise, rise up and deliver the people, and then everything comes to a complete disaster. But God is not finished, right? So we must remember that God often brings rescue out of what looks like complete disaster. And God is just as sovereign in, in delivering Moses from the Nile River and having him raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He's just as sovereign there as he is when Moses murders an Egyptian and has to flee to Midian and becomes an old man while God's people are still suffering. Right? We, got, we find him sitting in the desert as an 80-year-old sheep herder. <laughs> and it seems like this plan that was moving along so beautifully has all come crashing to the ground. You ever felt that? <laughs> you ever felt like you, you, you just could see exactly how it was all going to come together? And now it seems like everything's coming crashing to the ground. But God loves to bring life out of what looks like death. He specializes in that sort of thing. So often God's ways emerge out of what looks like disaster and God's deliverance out of what seems like an impossible situation. And of course, isn't that what Jesus and the cross is all about, right? This one has been cursed of God. Remember the first week we talked about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? We thought that he was the one who was going to deliver Israel, but now he's been crucified. And then some crazy people among us started saying that he's risen from the dead. We don't even know what to think. Right? It seems like everything has fallen apart, but God's not finished. God's not done. And actually, Moses, there's a subtle hint here that Moses is still clinging to the promise. And it's in the name he gives his son, Gershom. That means sojourner. A sojourner is somebody who's not settled. He's in the land of Midian, but he names his son sojourner and says, this is why, because I have been a sojourner in a foreign land with the implication that I won't always be. I'm not settled here. I'm a sojourner. We have to remember as well that God works in his time. Seems that God has forgotten. Moses is now 80 years old. Seems that he failed to live up to his potential and God has no backup plan, but that's not true. Seems hopeless. The kings died. We have a regime change even, but still nothing has changed for the Israelites. But then the, most, uh, the best part of this whole passage, those last few verses of chapter 2, we have to remember this, that God hears and remembers and sees and knows. So often when we're in the midst of suffering, that's what we really struggle to believe. That God hears and remembers and sees and knows. That is an absolutely remarkable statement. Look at chapter 2, 
verse 24. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that word God knew is not mere cognition. That's the word, the same Hebrew word used when Adam knew Eve and she got pregnant. It's an intimate love word. God knew. God loved his people. And then God is going to act. Hmm. What a, what a deliberate, uh, amazing contrast. Look back at verse 12, right? Moses saw Israel's need and then things end up in a disaster. But God sees and he brings deliverance. When we see that this God, the one who sees and remembers and hears and knows, is the God who's going to speak from a burning bush, who's so holy, he says, you have to take off your shoes to even approach. That's the one who knows and sees and cares. What a mystery. It seems God is at work often when it looks like everything has fallen apart. And of course, we see this preeminently in Jesus, the most unlikely of deliverers. He too was born under threat of death. He too was born when the king was ordering all the male babies under two to be killed, and yet God preserved his life. He too fled to the desert and was rejected by his own people whom he came to rescue. Doesn't that amaze you? Like, Moses gets rejected by his own people. But why should that surprise us? So was Jesus. Jesus came from a little fishing village to challenge the world's greatest superpower. God specializes in using the most unlikely of saviors and the most unlikely of means, nothing less than death on a cross to gain all the glory for himself. And our God delivers through suffering. Who is the God that would choose to deliver in this way? It's the God who is never distant from suffering. The God who took on flesh to share in our suffering. The God who endured the suffering of the cross to rescue us. When we're in the midst of struggle, the midst of persecution, the midst of heartbreak, isn't it good to know that our God has scars? That he himself has suffered. What about us? So often we think that God could never use us, but how dare we limit the God who delivered his people from Egypt through the most unlikely of people, Hebrew slave women and an 80-year-old reject herding sheep in the desert. That's what God used to preserve the seed line of the Messiah. And I would argue that God still works primarily through suffering. Why? The Bible gives several suggestions. It's an exhaustive, but I'll just mention these. Suffering has a unique ability to bring us into the very heart of Jesus. We become like him in his sufferings. In the midst of suffering, we often are tempted to do anything to make it end. And when you're in the midst of that, that's when you actually have a doorway 
to understand what it felt like for Jesus to go to the cross. And if the love of God seems abstract and distant to you, but your pain seems very real, may I suggest that your pain is actually your emotional connection to what the love of Jesus felt like for him. What love felt like for Jesus was despising the shame, but enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy of having you as his great treasure. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, and that's true. Suffering brings you into the very heart of Jesus. Trials and suffering as well make us more dependent upon God. There's a great verse in the Psalms where Israel prays, Lord, help us not to forget you when our bellies are full. You know, the Jews actually used to say grace after the meals because that's when you're most tempted to forget God. And uh, I love uh, Bart Simpson's prayer, by the way. It was one of the early episodes of The Simpsons where he's asked to say grace. You know what he says? He says, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. So often that's how we live, right? But what if we said grace after meals? Lord, help us not to forget you when our bellies are full, when things are going well. Third, trials and suffering teach us to hate sin and injustice. You're not supposed to read this story and say, oh, well, everything turned out fine, so you know, who cares about the the slavery and the persecution and the genocide? No, that stuff should enrage you because it enraged God and he did something about it. Christians are not called to be stoic in the face of evil and injustice, but sometimes they are called to wait for God's timing for when he will make all things right. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk to somebody if you're enduring suffering. I don't mean that. But there are times when you look at the world and you can't make it right as much as you might want to. But you must never lose the longing for justice and praying and working and doing what you can, right? Fourth, trials and suffering develop in us compassion towards those who are suffering God's people must never think that we are to be immune from suffering. One of the old Puritans, John Trapp, put it this way, one son hath God without sin, but none without sorrow. One son hath God without sin, but none without sorrow. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, unlikely deliverer, And praise God. I don't know if you've ever thought about the cross as the supreme revelation of God's wisdom. Because I don't know, sometimes maybe you're like me, I really wonder whether God um, is really ruling his world well. Maybe that's the thing you struggle with, to believe that God really is ruling well. Maybe you think of some suggestions you'd like to make for how he could do things better. And again, the cross does battle against our unbelief and says the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And it's seen supremely in the Son of God dying. I love that verse in Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. We're saying, I think that's one of the greatest verses in one of the greatest hymns ever written. Let us wonder grace and justice join 
The cross is not a compromise between grace and justice. Grace is fully demonstrated. Justice is fully satisfied. Let us wonder. All you can do with that is wonder. How could grace and justice coexist, let alone both be fully exemplified? Only the wisdom of God. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy store, the storehouse of mercy, when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. That's the word I want to send you out with tonight. Because of this most unlikely of saviors delivering in the most unlikely of ways, you don't just have an opportunity to start over and try to impress God. What he did on the cross doesn't just give you a fresh start. It gives you the righteousness of God and justice smiles if your trust is in Christ. And you can go out to the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. I don't believe that my value is based on my grades or my friends or what my parents think about me or my future prospects. What is true about me is that justice smiles and asks for nothing more because of what Jesus did, the most unlikely of saviors in the most unlikely of ways. The wisdom of God at the cross is beautiful. It's beautiful. Let's pray together.